afternoon and happy new year. I'm Frank Ling and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Radio Show. That's right. It's our first episode for 2006 where we're taking a look at recent developments in science and technology. Coming up on today's show, robotic arms, mutant animals, and advanced renal care. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. William Poundstone who will discuss Fortune's Formula. And later you'll be able to find out what the eigenvalue is. So stay tuned for all this plus the Grokotron 5000 and the world famous question of the week coming right up here on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty awesome. Uh, happy New Year, man. Happy New Year to you as well. <laughs> I'm surprised we made it another year. I feel the rush. I'm feeling tingly inside, but I think that's mainly uh, Did the... you hear that wish when the, uh, the New Year came in? No, actually I didn't. I no? was probably passed out. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you have any resolutions for uh, 2006? My resolutions, again, are not to make any resolutions. What about a colonoscopy? What, do you want me to give myself a colonoscopy or have someone else do it? I would think you'd have someone else do it. I mean, <laughs> you might damage yourself. <laughs> you know, everything's do-it-yourself nowadays, especially with the internet. Except some of the material on there is not exactly accurate. <laughs> I'll take the colonoscopy and put it up on a blog somewhere. There was a grad student who actually blogged his uh, brain surgery. Huh? He had a tumor removed and they ha- he had his doctor doctor uh, photograph it, the procedure. I'm, I'm sure it's actually quite instructive and <laughs> if, you want, if you want to see such things. In case you do go for a colonoscopy and they find something, turns out there's a drug from our favorite drug company to save us. Pfizer <laughs> has come out with another great drug. It's called Sutent. And it's for treating a gastrointestinal and renal cancer. Yeah, they seem to be focusing on like the lower extremities of the body, or at least the <laughs> mid, mid region. Well, you know, that's the ones that get the most press, I uh, guess. I guess. I'm not sure how you get renal cancer, but... <laughs> <laughs> the FDA has approved this drug for approval, and it looks like there's a good chance that it'll be available very soon. If anyone wants to uh, feel a little bit better about uh, some of their intestinal problems, uh, they can go to the website of Pfizer. You know, it's a good way to start off the year by talking about the colon. All right, well, what better way to ring in the new year than to talk about life? Life? It's beautiful. It is beautiful, especially when existing in radioactive ponds. Is this uh, the radioactive uh, star you got this year? <laughs> yes, I got I got a radioactive dog, and he glows at night. You can always find him. So it's actually interesting because uh, researchers have been actually been looking at Chernobyl's ecosystem some 19, 20 years after the actual disaster. And it's actually fascinating because they've actually found 100 species on the IUCN red list of threatened species which are in the evacuated zone. Have they become more powerful than you can possibly imagine? <laughs> I think they're ready to take over the world. What about those X-Men? <laughs> Have they emerged yet? I'm, I'm not sure, but at least they are able to select out the ones that are strong and fit and able to survive in these radioactive regions. And according to uh, James Morris of the University of South Carolina in Columbia, he actually says that it's evolution on steroids. Wow, that's so cool. It's like a direct TV, huh? <laughs> right. <laughs> It's fascinating because, I mean, they actually find mutated young fish, uh-huh. but the older fish that they find seem to be healthy. So it's just suggesting that the hmm. young ones die off pretty quickly. Right. And then the ones that are capable of surviving, survive. Wow. Do these species have some sort of special uh, DNA mechanism to help them survive, or are they... Uh... One one might presume, or at least that the mutations that are caused the mu- young fish to be mutated early on mm-hmm. just didn't happen to occur in these older fish that are still there. Wow. Yeah. So again, <laughs> quite fascinating. A lot of mutated fish, but still surviving. As they say, it's still not a good place to go on vacation. Mm. A lot of radioactivity still. 
Charles, do you think you're going to supersize it this year? My big toe, maybe. <laughs> my ears, definitely. <laughs> and my penis, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We gotta talk about other things besides uh what more can we talk about in the beginning of the year right how about the milky way galaxy okay i thought it was already at its maximum size maybe actually twice as large in diameter than we previously thought okay based on a new measurement of its size uh no based on more sensitive instrumentation that has recently been used to uh, look at the sky mm. so astronomers Actually, U.S. astronomers that were using the 8-meter Gemini South Telescope in Chile are now able to see artifacts 10 times fainter than previously. And what they were doing was they were looking at the galaxy NGC 300. Isn't that, that the Starship Enterprise? I thought it was NCC 1101. <laughs> oh, I thought it was 1701A. 17, oh, okay. We're yeah. going to get lambasted by all the Star Trek fans because of that. <laughs> yeah, I got to turn off their hyperdrive. <laughs> Isn't the <it> Star Wars? <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> yeah, it's warp speed, I think. I don't know. For this galaxy, they thought it was a little less than 25,000 light years across, but now with these measurements, by being able to see the fainter edges of the galaxy, it's up to 47 light years across. Mm. So this would imply that our own galaxy is going to be at least 200 light years across, rather than our current estimate of 100,000 light years. Okay, very cool. Well, so it's just going to take a little longer to see your neighbors then. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess we'll see more of them. Okay. This may actually affect a lot of our current understanding and how galaxies are formed in light of this uh, new measurement of how they look. Very cool. And uh, if you want to find more, you can check out Professor Ken Freeman's site at the Australian National University. All right. And finally, Frank, how are you cleaning up your mess this uh, new year? Uh, by not making it. <laughs> I've stopped eating. I've stopped taking showers. Uh, I was wondering why it was so difficult sitting in this room with you today. But <laughs> well, you know, I've adopted the breatharian diet, <laughs> which uh, has a t track record of starving and right. killing people, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but have you ever thought about trying to use a robotic arm? To clean myself up? To clean up your waist, anyway. I know the toilets in Japan are um, quite advanced. They have these water squirting systems that they'll do it for you. So mm. is that the type of uh, robotic arm you're... <laughs> uh, well, th that certainly sounds a lot more intriguing than the one I'm about to talk about. <laughs> Oh, does it also probe? It, well, probes bombs anyway. Oh, okay. So this is a device that they're using in Puerto Rico to actually clean up a lot of bombs that have been left over from a U.S. naval base, actually a bombing range out Ooh, there. bombs suck. <laughs> they blow up too. Yeah. They bombs don't kill people. <laughs> it's the TNT that does. <laughs> so actually, uh, it's quite fascinating because a lot of coastal ranges in the United States have naval base ha have this sort of problem where a lot of right. unexploded shells or mines. Mines, yeah. Trying to get these things out and clean up the environment is a bit of a tricky issue. Mm -hmm. And they developed like a huge robotic arm which can basically probe far away and grab these things out of the water and deactivate them. Wow. So uh, robots for better living, huh? And one day they'll take over the world. Maybe we can get them to fight wars for us. Uh, then, uh, one maybe, day... they, maybe we can just get them to rule the country and <laughs> eliminate all the humans. Because huh? we're too bad for our own good, huh? Indeed. <laughs> our time has come. Uh, anyway, so very fascinating work. This was reported in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, Mr. William Poundstone will join us to discuss Fortune's Formula. So stay tuned. Oh, I'm 
For decades, savvy investors, gamblers, scientists, even mobsters have been using the Kelly formula to strike it rich. Discovered in 1956 at Bell Labs by mathematician Claude Shannon and physicist John L. Kelly Jr., the scientific formula is virtually foolproof for those who understand it. Well, joins today to discuss the Kelly formula and the story behind it is Mr. William Poundstone. Mr. Poundstone is an acclaimed writer whose previous works include Labyrinths of Reason and The Recursive Universe, both of which were nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. His new book, Fortune's Formula, details the remarkable story of the Kelly formula for managing investment risk. Mr. Poundstone, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yeah, good to be with you. Uh, well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and you've certainly written a very fascinating book, uh, Fortune's Formula. Well, thank you. It's a very fascinating book, and I'm, I'm curious, actually, if you could, before I guess we get into the... Uh, the actual Kelly formula itself about a lot of the characters uh, involved, um, in particular, for instance, uh, Claude Shannon. Yeah, actually, when I went to MIT, I had heard all these crazy stories about Claude Shannon, who was revered as this Einstein-level genius, but he never really showed up on campus, and everyone said that he had somehow got this crazy idea that he could use his scientific formulas to make money in the stock market. And he had actually made, you know, a huge amount of money with his investments, as I found by looking through his papers in the Library of Congress. And uh, he credited to this Kelly formula. So I started looking into that, finding out who this John Kelly was, who, as you say, turned out to be uh, another scientist at Bell Labs that Shannon knew rather well. And he was originally from Texas. He was a Navy flyer and everything. But he was really intrigued by the connection between gambling and investing. So he used some of Shannon's formulas to really find this sort of all-purpose formula for investments or gambling. Hmm. And actually, you mentioned in your book that uh, the two kind of really didn't know each other very well at Bell Labs, but uh, came together later on to put their two ideas together. Yeah, just towards the end of uh, his experience at Bell Labs. Mm. And both of them, actually, Shannon was known for another field you mentioned, uh, information theory. Yeah, that's really where he came to fame. And, of course, uh, this has become the basis of the Internet, iPods, everything. So, you know, he's, he's quite widely regarded as one of the major minds of the 20th century. Hmm. Uh, you also mentioned in your book Edward Thorpe. Yeah, um, he actually knew Shannon at MIT. And Thorpe, of course, is the person who invented the whole idea of card counting in blackjack. Hmm. So he came to Shannon and told him about that because he, he sort of knew that Shannon really liked anything having to do with games or toys. Mm. And Shannon, of course, thought this blackjack system was just great. But he's the one who told him that he should really look into this Kelly formula and use that to decide how much he's going to wager in the casino. And Thorpe ended up doing that, and he found it worked very well. Hmm. Probably a good point to actually ask. So what is actually the Kelly formula? Yeah, it basically says any time that you want to make money in either gambling or investing, you first have to find a gamble where the odds are in your favor, and then it tells you how much you should invest, which uh, one version of it is edge over odds, where edge is basically your percent advantage and odds is computed like they do at the at the racetrack. So if you have a 5% advantage and the odds are 10 to 1, you would be betting just one half of 1% of your bankroll, which is not a whole lot in that case. 
case, but if you have a greater edge, then you would be betting more money. So it basically relies on you actually having better than the odds in your information. Yeah, you have to have the odds in your favor. You also have to have a pretty good idea of what the, the actual odds are. And if you follow this particular formula, they've showed mathematically that you make money faster than with any other money management system. I see. So it's a way of minimizing your risk and actually maximizing your returns. Exactly. And that's why it's become very important in the stock market as well. I see. I guess you do mention then that Thorpe actually tried to apply this to his blackjack betting scheme. How did that work? Well, he did so well, actually, that the casinos weren't crazy about this math professor winning all this money from him. So they started circulating Thorpe's picture, and every time he showed up in the casino, they'd, they'd just bar him. So he found that he had to use disguises in order to play it all. And like, as I say, like twice, they put a Mickey in his drink, and you know, he, he heard from other card counters that they'd been beat up by these thuggish uh, casino enforcers. Hmm. So that was partly what convinced him that it might be a little easier to make money in the stock market. <laughs> And also bankrolling him initially was the sort of a notorious mobster as well. Yeah, it was a guy by the name of Manny Kimmel. And uh, Thorpe just came in touch with him originally because there'd been an article in the paper about Thorpe's blackjack system. And he got all these letters from gamblers all over the country saying, you know, I'll put up some money and I'll stake you in Las Vegas. Uh, Kimmel was one of these people. But Thorpe had no idea of it at the time, but Kimmel was actually an associate of a New Jersey mobster named Longy Zwillman, and he was supposedly one of the biggest bookies in New York City at that particular time. It's said that he took million-dollar bets on football games from hmm. people like H.L. Hunt. Wow. It seems like the stock market was a little bit of a safer haven for them. Yeah, definitely. So how did they actually uh, then try and work the stock market with the system? They found that they could use uh, a lot of these derivatives like options and warrants because they were actually more like casino games than simply buying a stock. Mm. When you buy a stock, you have to put up an awful lot of money to you know, have a chance of making a profit. But with these derivatives like options, it's a relatively uh, small amount of money and you have the chance for much greater profit. And Thorpe was able to come up with a mathematical model of these options so that he could lay the odds on it and then he could use the Kelly formula to make sure he was managing risk and getting the best possible return. And the hedge fund he had, Princeton Newport Partners, was actually legendary because it had incredible returns over a very long period, mm. like averaging about 20% a year wow. over 28.5 years. Wow, and she also mentioned later on that over the long run he actually beat Warren Buffett's returns. Exactly, and so, mm. and so did Shannon uh, with his investments right. as well. Right. One of the interesting features, like you mentioned in the book, was that this actually acquires some sort of knowledge that other people don't have, and this led to something of insider yeah, information. Yeah, that, that's exactly what uh -huh. it's based on. In any of these situations, uh -huh. you have to know the true odds of the gamble that you're, you're placing better than the other bettors do. So that's why you really have to know what you're doing. But if you can get that knowledge, it really shows you how to make money. Hmm. So how widespread, then, is the use of the Kelly formula in investment today? It's become pretty popular in, in the hedge fund community. It's also something that, that is actually used at the racetracks a lot, particularly in Hong Kong, because there's a huge amount of money bet in the racetracks in Hong Kong. So these people who bet with computers have got very elaborate computer models, and they're using the Kelly formula, and they've made like tens of millions of dollars. Oh, wow. So can pretty much anyone apply this formula if they understand it? Yeah. Kind of the neat thing about it is the formula itself is really quite simple. You just have to find a situation where you do have an edge. Hmm. And that could be as something uh, as simple as like a poker game where you're playing with people and you, you know you're better at the game than they are. Or sports betting where you can predict, you know, the winners better than the great mass of bettors out there. Hmm. So pretty much everyone who, who gambles 
who should be gambling, you know, can use this formula. Hmm. Hopefully they've come across it. If not, then they're losing a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess, uh, you know, we're running a little slightly out of time, but I guess what whatever became of Shannon and Thorpe and Kelly? Well, of course, Thorpe became one of the most successful hedge fund managers. Mm-hmm. Shannon basically used his wealth to drop out of the scientific world, as I say. He stopped teaching classes at MIT, mm-hmm. and this is why I never saw him when, when I was there. Mm-hmm. But I did find some great stuff about what he did with his time. Uh, he was very interested in building robots and weird machines in his basement workshop. He collected musical instruments, and he would, you know, practice the oboe. So just whatever interested him was pretty much uh, what he Mm -hmm. spent his time on. Kelly, unfortunately, died tragically young. At the age of 41, he -hmm. was going to a business meeting at IBM's Manhattan headquarters, and he just dropped dead in the street. So I had to basically uh, learn about his life from his friends, quite Mm -hmm. a few of whom are still around. Um, there's also a legacy of these MIT card counters. Are they in any way related to Thorpe? Yeah, that, that pretty much all derives from Thorpe originally. He's the one who wrote the book Beat the Dealer that really, you know, made card counting a, a household word. I mean, it is a very fascinating tale, and uh, curious, I guess, are there any other issues of how to apply this formula and what people should be aware of if they're thinking about it? Well, it's just that in order to get the maximum return, you do have to be a fairly aggressive better. And mm-hmm. as I say, it means that your bankroll will go up and down a fair amount. And there's a certain controversy about that in the gambling community. Some people find it just very emotionally draining to use this Kelly formula, mm-hmm. and they recommend you use the half Kelly principle, which is betting less than the standard Kelly. Mm-hmm. So there's different ways to do it, but it does require real determination and a certain amount of guts, I guess you'd say. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure if you're gambling, you better at least have one of those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, Mr. Poundstone, I we are slightly out of time, but I guess we'll uh, close this by uh, thanking you for talking about your book, Fortune's Formula. Well, and, thank you. And you were just listening to Mr. William Poundstone discussing his new book, Fortune's Formula. You were listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
and Mr. William Poundstone, author of Fortune's Formula, has graciously agreed to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. And this week, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Bet, Raise, or Fold. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, if they were a poker hand, would you bet it, would you raise it, <laughs> or would you fold? Okay. So, uh, Mr. Pounds, are you ready to play a game, the Grokatron 5000? Yeah. Okay, here we go. All right, bet, raise, or fold, number one, pop music diva, Madonna. I think I'd fold on that. Just to have a sense she's sort of past her peak there. Okay. <laughs> Probably not good news for her fans. Yeah. <laughs> All right, number two, bet, raise, or fold the Fed Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan. I think I'd bet on that. Well, I mean, it's it's sort of hard to tell what he's going to do from this point, and there are some concerns about that, but I, I, I still think he's got something going for him there. Right, well, he certainly had a long history at the Fed, so. Yeah. Uh, all right, number three, computer scientist Alan Turing. I, I definitely raise uh, on him. He's one of the people, along with Shannon and maybe John von Neumann, who's really the three people who are really behind the digital computer. And if you look at the stuff he's written, I mean, he he really predicted so much of what we're seeing today. Pretty amazing guy. All right. Number four, bet, raise, or fold the Chicago White Sox. <laughs> <laughs> I think fold on them. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And number five, finally, bet, raise, or fold the president of the United States, George Bush. Uh, I would say fold. I think particularly since Katrina, um, he's, he's in a certain amount of trouble. Yeah, indeed. I think it's probably brought to light a lot of issues in the uh, administration. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Mr. Poundstone, I do want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around to play our game, The Grokatron 5000, and again, talking about your fascinating book, Fortune's Formula. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, ho, ho, and now it is uh, the mathematician. And now I am trying to tell you. What we have today is the eigenvalues. Yes, <laughs> I like to have them with the baguette. But to get it, I have to have an eigenfunction operating on the baguette to get the eigenvalue. But yet I still have a baguette. Such is the power of the operator algebra. And now for a little Pinot Noir. And now it's zinc oxide, sunblock agent. And this week's question, what's the De Broglie wavelength? If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might just go faster than light. And that's all for the inaugural 2006 edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us for the Berkeley Grox Science Show, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.